Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is something you can take with you. This is an additional pair of voices in your head. Welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Brad Listy, and as usual, I'm seated in Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're in good spirits. Are you in good spirits? My guest today is Chris L. Terry. He has a uh, debut novel out there now from Curbside Splendor. It is called Zero Fade. And uh, it's very nice to have Chris here. He and I are going to be speaking in just a second. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to, uh, wanted to tell you guys about a podcast interview that I did. Uh, I myself was interviewed uh, by a friend of mine uh, named Rich Ferguson. He does a show called Poetiscape on blog talk radio. And uh, I think this interview is going to go up on Sunday, but anyway, uh, we spoke, uh, late this afternoon. And ever since then, I've been analyzing my performance in my head, trying to remember what I said. I feel like I rambled, you know, I ramble a little bit anyway, as most of you know, but, uh, I feel like I was uh, particularly, uh, scatterbrained or something verbose. Uh, you know, I, the truth is that I'm a little bit harried this week. It, it's a hectic week. I have to go out of town, uh, for yet another wedding. I want to say it's like my fourth, like out of town wedding this year. So you know, I have to race to get everything done before I take off. It's a truncated week. Uh, so it's just hectic. And I did this interview. Uh, I talked to rich who's great. And, uh, at some point during the interview, I was talking about my interest in uh, the story behind the story, which is to say how I, uh, 
I, I like to know the, the subtext or, or what's actually existing behind the fiction and how I have trouble these days. Uh, a lot of the time reading fiction in a genuinely immersive way, because I'm always trying to figure out like what was going on with the author when he or she wrote the book. It's like, I just want the author to just tell me <laughs> like what is going on. Like, don't make me read 400 pages about a wizard. Just tell me that you're sad. So anyway, it was a weird train of thought. And, uh, and, and also just an expression of my current taste, you know, and inclination. It changes for me. I go back and forth. Uh, but what I want to say, like the point that I'm trying to make is that when I was talking to Rich and uh, I was trying in a futility to properly illustrate uh, my point, I brought up some uh, tabloid news involving the screen actor Michael Douglas. <laughs> uh, I don't know how much you guys have followed this. I, and you know what? I, I don't mean to follow this. It's not my intention. But it just kind of happens because, you know, I'm online. I read the news and it's just sort of there in front of me. Or maybe it's on my Twitter. You know, I don't know how it happens, but I get these bits of information and they stick to my brain. So, uh, you know, to illustrate uh, to Rich my tendency to want to know the story behind the story. Like the, the, the actual human thing, the human suffering, uh, to illustrate this, uh, this tenant, you know, this tendency of mine, I started talking about Michael Douglas and, uh, his cancer and you know that he had throat cancer, correct? I'm assuming you know this, you might not know this, but, uh, he had throat cancer and uh, he's now in remission, which is wonderful news. And uh, then this past week, there was a new twist and he admitted uh, in, in an interview with Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> that uh, he had lied about his throat cancer and that he actually had cancer of the tongue. And I'm, I'm not even entirely clear why he told this lie. Uh, but I read something quickly today about how he did it in consultation with his doctor, uh, the doctor that was treating him. And it doesn't make much sense at this point. I don't have the full... You know, I didn't really dig in. I just sort of read it quickly, but, uh, there's that. And then there are two other aspects, uh, of this, uh, narrative that I keep thinking about for some reason. One is that, uh, Michael Douglas, uh, earlier this year admitted, uh, publicly that his cancer was likely not caused by, uh, smoking or drinking as so many, uh, throat, uh, cancers or oral cancers are. But rather, uh, he had contracted this uh, cancer. Do you contract cancer? I don't know. He got cancer as a result, he thinks, of uh, performing oral sex on a woman infected with the HPV virus. That somehow there's a link between HPV and uh, the development of tongue cancer, <laughs> which is pretty gross. So... Uh, HPV is the human papillomavirus, for those of you unaware. Uh, the point is, it's a strange thing to publicize, on the one hand. On the other hand, I get it. You know, you're famous, you have a platform, you have a megaphone, you, you, you have fallen ill, and, uh, you know, if you can say something to prevent other people from sharing your uh, fate, then, you know, that's a noble thing to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, Michael Douglas was at the time, I believe was, you know, was married or at least I think he was. And yeah, I don't know. It just struck me funny when he said that, you know, like when he came out publicly and, and admitted that he got cancer from performing cunnilingus. <laughs> uh and, you know, okay, so then there's the other twist, which is that just a few weeks ago, uh, the news was released that Michael Douglas and his wife, uh, the, the actress Catherine Zeta-Jones, had separated. And just before that, 
It was in the news that Catherine Zeta-Jones uh, had been in uh, some kind of inpatient treatment for uh, like uh, a psychiatric uh, issue. I believe it's bipolar disorder. So yeah, I sound ridiculous. I understand that. And I'm ashamed. <laughs> I'm ashamed that I know all of this. But I swear to you on my life, I'm not Googling this stuff. This happens to me by accident. Or partial accident. It is, uh, it is the collateral damage caused by regular internet surfing. And it happens to me all the time. All the time. You know, like you, you get information online, you know, often superficial in nature, uh, tawdry, salacious information, and you get it uh, in unexpected places, uh, rapidly, in small bursts. And you might spend like 15 seconds reading something and then you click or you read a headline for two seconds or some sort of link and then you click away in another direction and it's over with, but it's there in your brain somehow. And, you know, and these things like live on in my brain, uh, like a trail of breadcrumbs. And I find myself, uh, like assembling <laughs> clearly, like I'm trying to assemble some sort of narrative. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is happening here. And what I think I've deduced, uh, which is, you know, probably no great leap in logic is that there is some seriously crazy shit going on in that household and in that marriage. <laughs> and, you know, I shouldn't be chuckling. It's a tragic story. And I'm embarrassed uh, by the fact that I think about it. Uh, and I'm also embarrassed that I use this uh, as an example in an effort to uh, describe my current reading tendencies <laughs> uh, on Rich's podcast. Like, where was my brain? I mean, if you listen to it, you'll hear. I was just lost. I feel like I was spinning. But, I, I, the, but it was one of those things where I feel like I actually had a point to make. I just didn't have it all together. Do you know what I'm saying? You ever have that happen? You have something intelligent to say, and the pieces are there but you haven't quite mastered it. And so you don't know how to articulate it clearly. So you're just grasping. So I guess what I was trying to say is that I'm most moved these days uh, when someone writes to me directly without a guise, no characters, no masks, no artifice. Uh, just like, you know, whoever you are, just tell me what the fuck is going on. Just tell me. You can tell me. <laughs> I can handle it. And just to be clear, I'm not condemning uh, fiction or making any kind of blanket statement uh, in some sort of grandiose way. I'm just stating preferences. Just describing my current interior experience. And I guess this Michael Douglas, Catherine Zeta-Jones tabloid story is a crude example of a fiction in a way, somehow on the surface, you know, like man gets cancer of the throat. No, it's tongue cancer. Oh, and by the way, he got it from performing cunnilingus and now he's divorced and his wife is getting psychiatric care. What's going on here? I find this exasperating. Just tell me what happened. <laughs> what is the story for God's sake? I need the story behind the story. Does this make me a horrible person? I think I'm worried about that too. Like, do, am I a parasite? Am I admitting a uh, terrible character flaw or some kind of profound uh, spiritual shortcoming here? It could be, you know, I, and I, and I want to make it clear. I'm not celebrating these people's problems. I just feel like, uh, the, you know, all I'm trying to say, <laughs> you see what I'm, you, you see what I'm saying about rambling? This has been my day. All I'm trying to say is that, uh, you know, Michael Douglas and all of that stuff aside, there's a lot of bullshit in the world. There's so much static on my computer screen and all around me. And there's not a lot of time. We don't have time for this. Uh, life is going fast. We must put away our phones 
and commiserate. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Chris L. Terry. His debut novel, Zero Fade, is available now from Curbside Splendor. Uh, We had a good talk, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Here he is, folks. This is Chris L. Terry, and his new novel, once again, is called Zero Fade. I've had a lot going on this year. I finally have landed this full-time job, and uh, my book just came out about a month ago. So it's already, there's a lot going on that I'm focused on that I'm excited about, but I like LA. Um, and I went out there to visit two weekends ago. I did a great reading at 826 LA. Well, I read at a great event at 826 LA. I had a, a wonderful time and it, it really helped me get excited for the possibilities of what's to come. You know, I'm kind of looking forward to spreading the evil empire a little further West. I mean, so what are you going to do out here? Like, are you... Um, going to continue to teach or are you going to like try to break into uh, Hollywood or do you just keep writing books? Um, yes, yes. And yes. Well, I landed a copywriting job. That's what's going to bring me out there and I'm excited about it. It's, um, it's actually at a company that I'm interested in and it seems like a really good atmosphere and pretty near where I'm going to be living. Um, otherwise my main goals are, I want to write a second book really soon. Um, and so I'm going to focus on that. If I can break into Hollywood, that would be cool. But I don't know. I feel like for so many people go out there wanting to do that, that I don't want to make that the focus of what I'm doing. So there's going to be other people that are far more hell-bent on being a screenwriter or something than me. And they're going to be able to pull it off because they have that, that hunger that I don't have at the moment. That said, you know, if if an opportunity comes up, I would definitely, definitely look into it because I like to write and – always interested in new ways to try to do it, you know? So, yeah. Okay. So when it comes to that hunger, because like, you know, this is something that interests me. Uh, I think there are people who have like an insatiable hunger to be a writer, whether it's, Mm -hmm. whether it's a screenwriter or a novelist, you know, or whatever it is. I don't know if I have that hunger for anything, (laughs) And But I'm mean, I'm dead serious. Like this worries me. Like, do I not have like a true passion, or is the intensity uh, the intensity of my passion, uh, you know, not like uh, strong enough? Am I not monomaniacal enough to succeed at this? Because it almost seems like you have to be that way. You know, it almost seems like you have to be like possessed. And I think the older I get, the less certain I I am of my like the singularity or the intensity of my passion, I feel like it's sort of spread out or I feel like I'm easily distracted or something. Like, do you ever concern yourself with those kinds of thoughts or am I alone? I I don't know. I, I do feel like I'm kind of a sociopath when it comes to writing. Like I I definitely need to do it. And I definitely hate myself if I don't do it. Cause I I guess it's cause I know it's what I want to be doing. And for right now, that's in terms of, of writing books, of writing stories. Um, not not scripts as opposed to scripts, uh, and that's what that's what made me want to go to grad school to get a master's degree in writing. You know, to go into debt for this thing that is probably not going to pay off, but so much. Um, the ultimate. That's I don't know. The ultimate. It's like the ultimate symbol of your love, right there. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I martyred my bank account. Um, <laughs> this debt burden. Yeah, is a symbol of my but love. All, but it also, I don't know. It gave me a, it, that kind of. I mean, I don't know if it's exclusively the money, but, you know, making that commitment of going to school definitely, that increased my motivation because it kind of, it raised the stakes. I knew that 
that's what I was there to do, and that's what I'd always kind of wanted to do, and that I definitely wasn't satisfied doing what I was doing before, which was I was editing makeup catalogs and getting drunk in front of CSI most evenings. And, you know, I, I wanted a little bit more out of life than that, just a bit more, like maybe a Law & Order instead of CSI or something. Was there like, was this like drinking and like softly weeping while watching CSI? Like, was it a, like problematic <laughs> drinking? Um, I mean, you know, I, I don't know how you would define problematic drinking, but there well, were other things I could have been doing. And, there, you know, there was there was the occasional weeping. Okay. Um, there was and, a... the, you know, those kind of existential questions, like, what, what the hell am I doing with myself? This is how I pictured myself. And, you know, would 16-year-old self-righteous me approve of this behavior? All that <laughs> stuff. All right. So uh, so when did you said you've, you've kind of always wanted to do this? Like, when did it, when did, it, you know, did the uh, the writing bug take hold for you? Um. The, the first homework assignment or the first school assignment that I that I cared about that I felt like I really plugged into was a creative writing assignment in third grade. And I, I wrote a story about a pair of monsters who lived in a cave and they were named Sonny and Cher. And it was the first time I didn't feel like I was forcing myself to do something while I was at school. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that, that, that's when I sort of started getting the idea that that might be what I like to do. Also, the teacher took notice and told my parents who were like, finally, he gives a rat's ass about his homework. Um, <laughs> so I think it's, I don't know. My mother uh, used to work as a children, still works as a children's librarian. Um, okay. And, and so there were always books around. So I kind of, I, I was encouraged down that road, but I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, reading and writing were always things that I, I naturally enjoyed anyway. Um, I don't know. I, I majored in English in undergrad, and always I was writing zines. I was pretty active in the punk rock scene in Richmond, Virginia, in the '90s and in the early 2000s. And um, I was writing zines then. I, so I always liked to write. I was writing zines, lyrics, and knew that you know writing a book was a dream. So it's it's cool to be doing that now. Okay, it's really cool. Wait, and so yeah, I'm, I'm I was reading your bio. It says that you uh, you were you spent your late teens and early twenties actually touring around the world singing for punk bands. So you're a singer too. Um, and the, the, if you define singing loosely, yeah. I was, um, you know, shouting. Yeah, I, uh, the the band that did the most was called Light the Fuse and Run, um, like what it says on a firecracker. Right. And we were around from 2000 till 2003, and uh, yeah, we toured the U.S. a couple of times. You know, did all did, did the whole country. Then we did a lot of brief, you know, week or two long tours. Um, went through southern Canada, did eight or nine countries in Europe. Uh, released a handful of records. It was kind of a like a cult popular band you know we could we could pack a house party in most college towns well that's good i mean like who's booking all this stuff you guys are doing it yourselves or did you have somebody setting you up um in europe we worked with an agent but in the u.s it was all it was really grassroots actually um we were on a label called level plane which was pretty stylish in our little sub corner of the punk world um and you know a lot of the shows we were doing were very, very DIY. You know, we'd play a house party or we'd play like a lefty bookstore or a record store. Um, and somebody who was into that scene and into that, that type of music in a town would be actively seeking bands to bring in. Um, and we also, we were lucky that the label we were working with was popular enough that people were interested in us if we were on the label. So they would contact us. Um, the drummer in our band, Evan, did most of the booking. And he was, you know, he was really good at being on message boards and talking to people and things like that. There's, uh, always, there's always one in every band. There's always like one guy who's like the PR and marketing guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that was him there. And I don't, I don't know. I, I was doing that for the band that I was in before that, too. Um, so I don't know. That, that was a... A really that was an amazing way to just kind of see this network come to life as we went from place to place, and it even gave me a lot of ideas for some of the stuff I'm I'm doing to promote Zero Fade. Um, j just doing, you know, I did a book tour in August. My wife and I drove to the East Coast and went from Virginia up to Massachusetts. Um, we pretty much went places where we lived or where we had friends, so we knew we'd have somewhere to sleep. <laughs> Uh, and that there'd be a few people at the reading, and it was it was a lot like doing a punk tour, except you know, uh, I wasn't getting. I, it was not nearly as rowdy, and I'm, you know, ten, fifteen years older than I was when I was doing that before. Right. Sure. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it seems like I mean, I've, I've talked to uh, multiple people on this program who have some history in music, and I, you know, I'm a big believer that like uh, the different art forms, uh, you know, cross pollinate, and then if you have an experience like as a musician or as a visual artist or as a filmmaker, whatever it is, 
like it's going to be instructive in some way uh, or in multiple ways when it comes down to publishing. And so, you know, like you're talking about community building, um, touring, you know, doing creative things to try to, you know, get people's attention. Um, you know, there's obviously that side of it, but when it came to the actual writing, like, is there anything from those days, whether it's stuff that wound up, uh, finding its way into the plot of your book or whether it's, you know, your actual approach to the creative act of writing that you can, you know, look at and and then point to your musical history and, and say, well, you know, these two things are directly bound. Hmm. Um, I do write a fair amount of nonfiction and some of the, some of my touring stories are working their way in, you know, especially as I was starting to kind of reconsider the life I was living when I was in, getting into my mid twenties and starting to feel like the old guy at the party. <laughs> um, other, <laughs> oh, you know, it's, if it's in the, in the punk rock scene, it was a lot of 19 year olds sure, and yeah. being 24 around a bunch of 19 year olds is pretty alienating, especially, um, I was also at the time starting to think about my own like racial identity. I have a black father and an Irish American mother. Um, and I wasn't really meeting a lot of people of color. And that was something I was becoming really critical of in my own life. Um, but otherwise, let's see, writing wise, I think just the, the act of writing of knowing that, you know, th- this is on me. I need to do this. This is what I want to do. And I can make this, I can make this happen by doing it. Um, I th- I th- just, just knowing that from, from playing music and from writing songs, uh, that, that definitely carried over. I'm, just I know how to sort of kick myself in the ass. Well, and and okay, and so the whole time that you were in these bands and then you were pursuing this musical life, you knew in the back of your mind that you wanted to be a writer. And were you actively writing or attempting to write fiction or nonfiction? Some, yeah. I was in undergrad at VCU in Richmond, um, and I was taking creative writing classes, which were my favorite classes. Um, and so I was writing stories, and I don't know. I, I had it in my I had it in my head that I, I wanted to get a master's degree in writing eventually, that I wanted to maybe be a professor, um, a writing professor, which I still haven't quite pulled off. Um, but I also knew that I was having a tremendous amount of fun traveling as a musician and, you know, some success, at least on a personal level, just in being able to see these new places and go places to play music and release records. Um, but I also, the la- I didn't want to be, this goes back to the old guy at the party thing, which I guess kind of stems from that Chris Rock old guy at the club joke. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I just I didn't want to be the embarrassing middle aged dude who's trying to rock out. Right. Um, it's hard to do. It's that's hard scary it's, to me. It, I, like I look at even like even these bands that have like super longevity and they're somehow still doing it. But like, there's something embarrassing about watching like Mick Jagger try to like dance and you know. Like, and I don't. Yeah. Want, but I don't want to be ageist. You know, I want to. Let, I think that you need to let people do what they want to do. I mean, if they can still pull it off and sell out a stadium, like bless them. You know, but. Yeah, it's like it's, if, it's hard if I'm to age well. Yeah, and if I'm as successful as Mick Jagger is, and I'm 143 years old, mm-hmm. by all means, let me keep let me keep rocking. Um, and it also it's kind of a, I was asking myself the questions like, you know, I was working in a coffee house, and it's like, when do I when do I make that unwitting transition from being um, the hard rock and punk rock guy who makes ends meet by working in a coffee house. And then, you know, when does that turn into, well, I guess I'm an alcoholic barista that plays a gig every couple months. You know what I mean? <laughs> the sad transition into the alcoholic barista life. Exactly. And so I figure I can, I can do that in private a little bit more as a writer. Um, right. Cause it's just me alone. <laughs> there's something, there's something more dignified and sophisticated about the gradual fade into alcoholism for a writer. Like you're in like a, I don't know. You're in your study, you know, <laughs> like you're surrounded by books. <laughs> yeah, and a blazer is a great way to carry a beer gut, and right. you know, <laughs> or to, to hide a, be- a beer gut. <laughs> uh, so, when was the official break? Like, at what age did you say, "I'm okay, I, I quit music"? Like, was it was there some sort of like real like uh, defining moment that you look back on, or was it sort of just like a gradual thing? Sure, um, it was. It was a gradual thing that had some. There were some pretty big landmarks along the road. Um, Light the Fuse and Run did a like a summer long tour in 2003 when I was 24. And that's when I was really kind of getting critical of just the amount of diversity I was encountering. And it wasn't, that's when I was starting to feel like my lifestyle wasn't really, it wasn't measuring up to what I I wanted for myself well, as wait, much. So let me ask uh, you this, because you, you come from, um, you know, a biracial, uh, from bi, a biracial family, from biracial parents. Sure. Is that how you phrase it? Mm-hmm. Um, so are you, are you, go ahead. 
Oh, it's, it's a mixed-race family. I'd be the biracial one. Yeah, My you're parents the bi- are a biracial yeah. couple. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so your parents are a biracial couple. You come from a mixed-race family, and you are biracial. Um, yes. So are you saying that you – did you feel pressure – like you were hanging out with mostly white people on a punk rock tour, I'm assuming. So did you feel pressure to, like, hang out with more black people and to, like, mix it up more? Is that what you're saying? A little bit, yeah. Um, yeah, a, a little bit. I just – I felt like I didn't know myself as well as, as I wanted to at that point in time. Um Earlier, when I was 15, my family moved from Massachusetts to Virginia. Um, and I don't know, you know, Massachusetts, it's pretty diverse, but there's not a very big black population there. Right. Um, and so then I went from this suburban high school outside of Boston um, to go into an inner city school in Richmond, Virginia. It's a predominantly black school. And the way I usually sum that up in a sentence or so is that, you know, I went from being the black kid at a white school to being a white kid at a black school. Um, Whoa. And, you know, I was you know, teased for talking white. Um, I'm also, I'm, you can't see me because we're on the phone, but I'm pretty pale. Well, um, no, okay, I'm looking at you because I have your website up while I'm talking to you, and like, you have kind of like red mm-hmm. hair, right? I mean, I, I'm, mm-hmm. okay, red yeah. hair, lighter skin, blue eyes. Um, mm-hmm. Like, so, like, physically, do you, like, how do you identify? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, because I know, like, um, I mean, and like, how are, I mean, how are you treated? Because, like, I think of, like, uh, you know, I remember reading about uh, Obama, you know, when, uh, you know, over the years when he's been talking about this and you know how he sort of had to, like, find his his racial identity. And, like, I think, like, you know, he looks like a, a black man, uh, even though his mother yeah, is yeah. white. And so, like, he gets treated as such. He never passed for white by accident. Right, yeah. exactly. So, like, you um, seem more of, like, a mix. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like visually. Mm-hmm. So, like, how does that... How did that play for you? Like you say, like when you're hanging out with uh, all these kids at this uh, black school or, or predominantly black school in Richmond, like they treated you like a white dude. Like, did you feel that like explicitly or? No, it, it was it was different. I guess that's that's that short sort of take on it is is, is kind of a, a simplification. Um, what usually happens with me is that. Now, this is not, of course, not always the case. But oftentimes, white folks think I'm a white guy who has kinky hair, and black people can tell that I'm mixed. Um, so what I was mixed as in that I'm part black, part white. Um, and so what would, sometimes what I sensed happening in Richmond, um, was that it was almost like the reaction I'd sometimes get was like, Hey, you, you can't pull one over on us. You think you're trying to trick us. We know you're black. You're not better than us. That, that was, that was sometimes the vibe that I got. Um, and, so, and, I'm, huh, I, I haven't. I write about this some, and I'm still trying to kind of verbalize that aspect of it, because uh, that made me—I don't know—it made me wonder what I was unintentionally doing and how I'd been socialized, and you know, if—and it made me feel cut off from what I felt was an aspect of myself. I mean, okay, so let me ask you this, because this is a fascinating conundrum. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Indeed. You know, when you, yeah, you're like, no, no kidding, dude. I'm like, you know, I'm writing books about it, but. Um, when you were in uh, Massachusetts at the predominantly white school, did you feel black among these people? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's got to be so sure. confusing. I mean, so, so I, I really I started thinking more about my own identity and the way that I presented um, uh, in in probably middle school, which is a little bit more diverse than grade school. And it's just I think that's a time when everyone is kind of figuring out their identity. I was also like, and now I know that I'm also a skater. That's what I'm into, you know. Um, so there's the the subcultural identity, which I'd say is, you know, the kind of music you like and the things you're into for recreation. And there's also your cultural identity. Um, and partially, this was my father is my black parent. And I had him in my ear, you know, especially as I was becoming more of an adolescent. I was into skateboarding and I don't know, I got in trouble a couple of times. I was into writing graffiti with my friends, you know, and just doing kind of, I don't know, low level kind of disruptive stuff that kids do in the suburbs. Um, and some of that was going on because I was feeling kind of alienated, partially, I think, culturally, you know, racially, and partially my family didn't have as much money as some of the other people in our town. So it was always, a, you know, it was a kind of a, a very reserved, preppy atmosphere. And I, I didn't, that, that didn't fit with me at all. Um, so I had my dad telling me, you know, that my parents were saying that, that, that they 
when the teach when some of my teachers figured out that I was black or that my father is black, um, that I was in greater danger of being tracked into um, less challenging classes at the school. That they had automatically had lower expectations for me as far as academic performance went. Um, Who told you this? My parents were telling me that this was something that they they had experienced when I was when I was younger, when I was in grade school and too young to know that this was going on. Okay. Um, and as it turned into a kind of hell raising adolescent, that morphed into. You know, people are expecting you to act up. People are expecting you to mess up uh, because because you're black. It's that kind of that racism of lowered expectations. I think is the term that some people use. Um, just that I was kind of more on display because I didn't fit in there for a variety of reasons, be they um, financial or, or cultural. Um, and so that that, that ins- you know, you know, in, in some ways that was that was a black experience that I didn't entirely realize I was having. And that even my dad had to kind of convince me that I was having, because I was like, no, I'm just into doing this badass shit. And that's why I'm getting in trouble. Like, no, I don't know. I think you'd be getting less trouble if, if you were a different color. Um, so, okay. And that so, was kind of, well, let me ask you ahead. this because, um, you know, if you're living in Massachusetts, you're going to a predominantly white school, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, your cultural orientation is going to be, it sounds like it was more towards like punk rock and like, you know, quote unquote white music and stuff like that. Um, was there any concern from your parents that like, you know, you weren't embracing, you know, the black side of your identity enough? Like, you know what I'm saying? Is that like an issue or? Sure. Um, you know, I think that that was one of the things that, and, and yeah, definitely. I, I liked a lot of white guy stuff. I mean, this was at a time when skateboarding wasn't very diverse either. I've seen that change a lot. Right. Um, but yeah, skateboarding was a white thing then. And I mean, punk music and I don't know, grunge, which was popular then were white guy things too. I liked a lot of hip hop at the time also. Um, and there was often a kind of a back and forth for me musically and just in terms of the culture I was consuming. Um, racially. My dad is a black guy who likes rock music. Um, my mom is a white woman who likes a lot of black music. So I was kind of hearing a lot of this stuff at home anyway. Um, and I knew that my parents, they wanted greater diversity for my sister and I. And that was one of the reasons why they wanted to move to Virginia, where they knew there was a, a bigger black population. Okay. You know, I was going to, I was going to ask that. I was going to ask if like there was any, if that was any part of the motivation for moving down there. I think that, that was, that was an aspect of it. It was also, also, just you know, the rent was literally in, in Richmond was literally half what it was in the Boston area at right, the time. Right. Um, so it was also it was financial, and it just seemed like a good move. And that I think they could tell that you know some of the pressures of living in this um, kind of upscale suburb were having a negative effect on me and probably my sister as well. Um, and that they hoped that you know that there'd be there'd be less pressure in Virginia. And was there? I'd say, well, there was, <clears throat> there was a different profession, uh, press, excuse me, there was different pressure. Um, yeah, I'd say the, the, the racial pressure was different. People in, in New England are pretty reserved. Um, so even, even if they're, you know, even if they're thinking something about me or they're, it, it might not come through in an interaction. It could be kind of I could be kind of silently discriminated against. Whereas in in Virginia and the South, people are usually a lot more kind of forthcoming with things, and so, <laughs> uh, which means sometimes you know I was hearing some redneck using the N word at the gas station, and also sometimes people were just asking me about my racial identity more often. Well, um, okay, that's an interesting point. Okay, because Massachusetts is often held up as sort of like this liberal bastion. You know, it even functions that way sometimes in my mind because it's a very progressive state and you think of it like it's got healthcare coverage and great education system. And like, I'm thinking to myself like, God, this is some sort of utopia, but is there one, is there like a, a circumstance or, or is there one of those particular environments that you preferred? Like, did you feel like in Richmond? Well, like at least it's out in the open or did you prefer when people kept it themselves? (laughs) Man, yeah, remind me to go back to talking about like, liberal places and race because that's that's something I'd like to discuss more. But yeah, um, I, I rather know where I stand. Um, it, I mean, it, yeah, that, that, that's that's pretty much what it comes down to because I've already got my own prejudices. I've got my 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 guesses as to how I'm going to be received by by different people, um, and I'd rather just get it over with. There's a kind of a tension. Um, and I don't want to go into detail too much, but I had a I had a coworker who I got a racist vibe from, and this was this is a white woman, um, and I at a, at a different job than I'm at right now, and 
you know, it, it was nothing I could, could point my finger on. I couldn't be like, this woman, you know, just called Kanye West a nigger. So she's, she's racist to me. I just got the feeling like my gut told me that this person, this person had some, some baggage. Um, and so I, was, I worked with her for the better part of the year, just waiting. Cause I just knew something was going to come. I just knew eventually I was going to hear something that was going to confirm this. Um, and yeah, I finally in the car one day, she, uh, went on a rant about how black people stand on the street while they're waiting to cross. And I was like, really? Really, this is this is what it comes down to. But I also felt this enormous sense of relief, like there'd just been this storm cloud for like a year. I just knew that I was going to hear something, and I eventually did. So yeah, I think I'd rather just have it be upfront. And sometimes I even think that if it's upfront, people are a little bit more upfront with each other in general. Um, well, for lack of a better word. Well, no, I get it. I mean, because it did at least it's ventilated. Then you know, there's it's like a repressed emotion, mm-hmm. and and you know, there, it's it, you can like you say, you can kind of feel it lurking beneath the surface, and. That's just uncomfortable. Not that like when it's ventilated and it's ugly, it's not uncomfortable then too. But I think there's something about letting it loose that at least provides some hope for a communication or dialogue or something. But, you know, exactly. what, it, what it makes me think of is that I think in contemporary times, uh, you know, overt racism, unless you're in like, you know, the deep south or in particularly cloistered communities where, you know, or, you know, groups of people where uh, it's permitted or whatever, uh, you know, most of the time everything's done in code. And like a lot of, I feel like a mm-hmm. lot of the racism is subsurface <laughs> and it's like, you know, people say certain things and there's all this dog whistle talk where like, you know, they'll say certain things and people in the know will sort of nod their heads, but you know, it's very, uh, carefully crafted so that they cannot be accused of overt racism. Like just to give like one example, like, you know, one common example, it's like trying to keep people away from the polls, you know, voter suppression mm-hmm. efforts. Like it's just so it's so naked, but yet, you know, there's no N-word, there's no... Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just... It's, yeah, it creates an, an escape hatch for the person that's perpetuating that. Right. Because they're like, I, I didn't say anything racist, I said this. Yeah, and so I, I guess, like, the point that I'm trying to make, and it sort of circles back to talking about making things explicit, is that it's better to have some sort of dialogue, because, you know, I think that you have the people who harbor these fears and these kind of ill feelings and they either suppress them or, or in just make you feel weird because they're like, you know, sitting on this, uh, you know, secret, I guess, or you have people who, uh, you know, I think genuinely want to talk about it, but are afraid to talk about it for fear of saying something wrong. Do you know what I'm saying? Or, or somehow yeah. offending. And I feel like that's, uh, you know, also a problem. Yeah, and that sort of t- takes me back to what I was experiencing in the punk scene in the early 2000s. Um, you know, I was in like a pretty, I guess, yeah, a pretty politically correct uh, subfaction of punk rock, and it was largely white. And it felt like race was almost people were against racism, except in this little world there was it was it was pretty homogenous, so there wasn't really any any progress made on that. It was like a you know, it, it was it was anti-racism but not in practice it was just in just in theory um well that's, that's a joke that i've, I've that's like massive that i've made about it you know yeah yeah the joke that i made is that it's like a grassroots organization called a bunch of white dudes against racism <laughs> or against racism and sexism right. and yeah massachusetts is like that and a lot of these other places that are thought of as these liberal utopias um austin texas portland oregon those are those are predominantly white places um well, no, this is what I used to joke about because I went to I went to undergrad at Boulder, so I mean Boulder is like lily white, and like my a, my, yeah, yeah. my big joke about it was that it's you know I was like Boulder's a really diverse place, like it's got every kind of white person imaginable, like you've got you've got like Christian conservatives living there, you've got like you know the aging baby boomer flower children, you've got like <laughs> astronauts, you've got like trust fund kids, you know, like it truly is like it runs the gamut, you know, like drug addicts, like the you know whatever it happens to be, but it is lily white and it's like, it's a lot easier to sort of sit on your moral high horse when, you know, you're in this kind of like homogenous zone of tolerance where you don't actually have to engage trying to bridge cultural boundaries and get to know one another. And, you know, those are real things. So anyhow, it's, you know, it's interesting to talk about. It's good. I think it's good to talk about. Um, and I agree. Uh, do you feel like this is the, or one of the primary focuses of your writing work, like both now and going forward? More going forward. Um, Zero Fade, my book, 
was my, my thesis in grad school. Um, and while I was working on that, I was also writing a lot of nonfiction stories about being mixed race. Um, and, you know, in writing those stories, I was, I, I wanted to do it because I thought I would get some good material out of it. And because I wanted to force myself to really think through some things, um, and just kind of consider my identity, um, which wasn't easy. You know, that, that was definitely emotionally taxing to do. And it continues to be as I work on it. It's rewarding, but it's not easy. I mean, do you have, do, do your parents, like, do you have conversations with your parents, uh, you know, in your adult life where you, you ask them, you know, or, or like consult them on what their thoughts would be? I don't know if I'm thinking about or speaking about this intelligently, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you, like, how do you sort it out? Is it something you just have to work out internally or do you turn to your parents and say like, how do we, how do I parse this? Like, how was I put together? You know? Sure. Um, there's some stuff that we haven't discussed. I get along well with my parents, but they also live pretty far away. I don't see them but once or twice a year. Um, you know, there probably will come a time where I'll want to ask them some more difficult questions, and I'm, I'm not quite there yet. I think I want to get my own perspective. I want to develop my own perspective even a little bit more mm-hmm. and then come to them, um, and partially because I don't want to misrepresent them in my own writing. If I'm writing something that's nonfiction, you know, I, I love and respect them, and don't want it to, and I don't know, don't, don't want to put them out there in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't know. They, they definitely tell me, they tell me some stories about, about growing up and about some of, you know, about different, I guess, racial things that happened. And even some of my memories, I look back at them now with a, a slightly more, you know, a more critical eye or a more, um, with like more what? perspective. Well, for instance, the story that they told me, um, so we lived in a predominantly Jewish area, a town called Newton, which is home of the Fig Newton, the, the non-cookie. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, and we were we were in the car coming back. I think my parents had taken me and my friend David somewhere. Um, and David's older brother is three, four years older than us. And he's uh, – David, David and his brother Adam are Jewish. And um, Adam was making – making some black friends at school. Most of the black students at our school were bussed out from the city. Um, and Adam was into hip hop music, into rap music as it was, this was the mid eighties when like run DMC was first coming out to the suburbs and sure, yeah. people outside of the South Bronx were getting more aware of hip hop. Um, and so we're in the car, David and I are in the back seat. My mom and dad are in the front seat and David asks me if I know any black people. And I say, no. Um, and then he was talking about like his, that his brother had a, a black friend from school and they were trying to figure out, how to get his brother over to his friend's house after school because the friend, you know, lived about 10 miles away in the city. Um, so at the time, you know, I, I, I didn't realize that I was black or that my father was black. And, you know, my dad was in my life. He'd, I'd seen that guy every day for the last six, seven years. And you had, so no, there, you had no idea that he was black? No, I just, I, no. I, and I didn't really, I guess since I said I didn't have any black, that I knew, didn't know any black people, um, that would imply that I knew what black was and didn't realize that my dad dad was or is or that I was. Right. Or maybe I just didn't know what the hell David was talking about. I mean, I don't think I had to think about race a whole, whole lot before then, especially being pale as I am. And, you know, having curly hair and living in a Jewish area, I have some Jewish friends with similar <laughs> coloration right. and hair to me. Sure. Yeah. So there, there's an example. That's a story that my parents told me, you know. Sure. Yeah. And so um... – just to shift gears a little bit, I want to ask you like more specifically about your writing life. Uh, you know, you make the move from Massachusetts to Richmond, uh, which is a pretty big cultural shift and uh, just a big life change. So I'm wondering if that's when you started to really turn towards writing in a serious way, or was that something that happened later in your life? Yeah, I'd say high school. Um, so my self-esteem took a few hits, obviously, for, for, during the move, but also just in kind of in knowing that my family was having these money problems and that maybe things weren't as comfortable as I assumed that they were when I was younger. Um, and so the idea of life, just generally achieving things in life did not feel as possible when I was, say, 15, 16 years old. Um and right around then, I, that's when I started to get into punk rock. I was already into skateboarding. I was kind of a skateboarder who mainly liked rap music. And a guy that I would skate with brought me to see some local hardcore bands in Richmond, a pretty uh, popular band at the time called Four Walls Falling. Um, sounds, and I remember, sounds, sounds positive. <laughs> yeah. 
they were actually like a pretty political straight edge type band as, as far as hardcore goes they were a pretty pretty positive interesting band um but uh I don't know, I, I got pretty into punk because it seemed really accessible. It seemed really doable. It was something that you could do if you didn't have much money. And you didn't have to be one of the cool kids to do it. And that was really attractive to me at the time. Um, and one of those things that was attractive to, me, attractive to me was writing. I started getting zines. And I realized that you know, I could sit up late a couple of nights and write a few pages of stuff and then take it to Kinko's, make two dozen of them, and give them to my friends or sell them for a quarter at shows. Um, so I guess I was... That idea of having that of self-publishing and actually having some quick results for what I, from what I was doing and having a community to share them with was when I really started thinking about writing. Um, and as the zine zine scene kind of developed, some zine writers moved toward doing books or compiling back issues of their zines into a into a collection. Um, and I don't know. That's when I started thinking, hey, you know, I, I would I would like to write a book. Um, just have a book with my name on the cover. And that was about as far as my thoughts on the matter went. Uh, so that, that was happening, happening in high school. I also, I don't know, I had a cool English teacher. Um, I really enjoyed her class. Uh, I remember I got a, a on a paper. We read uh, Henry Fielding's Tom Jones, the, the, the really old novel. I believe it's maybe from the 1600s. I might be completely off base here. But I put a picture of the singer Tom Jones on the report cover and got an A. <laughs> not, just, not just for putting the singer on the cover, but I was having fun with it, you know. And so that, that type of thing, it seemed, it seemed like it came naturally enough to me that I could have some fun with it. Well, you know, you know what? And, and I think it's a very common thing. It happened to me. I think it's happened to a lot of my guests. In fact, I know it's happened to a lot of people that I've talked with on this show. But um, teachers giving you their approval, adults in your life when you're a kid telling you that you're good at writing or you're good at anything. Like when you're a child, that stuff sticks, you know? It and you know, yeah, and I, I don't, I've done some work with troubled youth. I used to teach in juvenile detention centers. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've worked with a lot of kids that had been through a lot of trauma or had been through a lot of abuse. And you could tell if, if they hadn't had any sort of positive reinforcement. Sometimes they didn't know what to do with a compliment or they were just discovering talents that they were finally developing behind bars when they, when they actually had access to a way to do it, you know? So wait, you, you worked with these kids when? I feel like you've done a lot of different things. You, like, when, I, I have done a lot of different things. This was like 2011, 2012. I was working for a nonprofit that did an arts program in juvenile detention centers around Chicago. And did you feel like you made an impact? Um, I don't know. Uh, I, at that age... Somebody, if you're, te I was teaching a three-month program. You can, a 16-year-old can become a very different person over the course of three months. And so I definitely watched students realize that they had an interest for an aptitude in in writing or performance, um, and watch them kind of also watch them mature a little bit and become leaders within the group. And I don't know if that was me, if that was just luck on luck that I had these certain students or you know, a combination of different things if it was just kind of a perfect storm. Um, so some impact, yeah, but then those same kids, you know, then they turn, some of them would turn 17 and get sent up to an adult prison for another 20 years. Yes. And so, yeah, so whatever, whatever good being in the program might have had on them, you know, that could very easily get negated. Well, you know, I, I, like I was, at, I taught um, at like uh, Santa Monica Community College for five years and you know, it's not quite the same as working with juvenile delinquents, but what I found in working with students is that I always felt like the semester was too short. It was like, I, it was like too short of a time to actually, and, and there were too many kids to actually have like the level of impact that I would have wanted to have or the level of impact that they kind of needed in terms of, um, you know, like some of these students would come in to basic English at this school and their aptitude was like at the seventh grade level, or, which is not an exaggeration, if that, you know. And so it's just that that part of it frustrated me. You know, like, did you ever feel frustrated where you're like, OK, like I I can only do so much and then they're sort of out of your hands and you, and you know some of them aren't going to make it? It's heartbreaking. And also even working with students that were from the neighborhood I was living in at the time, um, being like, man, I... I might have passed this kid on the street at some point, you know, uh, and what, what would what would happen if we encountered each other on the outside beforehand? You know, would I have had any sort of a positive impact on them or 
you know, you know, how, how would that have gone down? And yeah, also I've, I'm working with this kid for three months. Um, what are they going to be like in three years? You know, are they going to be able to even access other things like this um, that might help them to continue to develop or are, you know, are they going to fall into all the other horrible things that are going on around them? Well, you know, this, is, the, this is the thing. That's so, yeah, this is the thing that's so crazy is that like, I would have students in my class where, you know, the kids like kids that you you knew if they dropped out or if they didn't make it, that was it. Like they were done, and they were going to go back to, you know, their neighborhood or whatever. And like you just didn't know how they were going to get by. And it was like there was no going back. Like it was very doubtful that they would ever return to school. And so you'd have them in classes, and it would be a situation where they didn't deserve a passing grade necessarily, but. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know from a moral standpoint, I always forget the difference between morals and ethics, but you know what I'm saying? I didn't know what the right decision was. Like, do, do, yeah. I, do I pass this student just to keep them in school <laughs> or do I give them the grade that they deserve knowing that that's probably going to send them into a life that's not going to be very easy? You know, it's, it's the other side of that is if you give the, if you give your students if students get years and years of sympathy C's and sympathy D's, eventually they'll graduate and be ill-prepared for it. You're just kind of delaying that inevitable. Right. Maybe that that's one standpoint, you know, but that also gives the student more time to develop as a student and to learn other things and pr- to pursue other interests. Well, and plus so, like, what's, a, what, what's, what's a answer. better, what's a better environment? Would you, you know, maybe it's a second, you know, cause I always erred on the side of keeping them in. I don't know if I was just too soft or whatever, but like, that's usually where I fell. It was like, you know, give them a C or a D, let them, let them stay here. It's better that they're here and possibly learning and having a chance to turn things around and like making it final now. Yeah. And especially, I don't know, in a community college environment, I do diversity work now at Columbia, which is, um, it's a, it's a big, uh, it's a large private arts college in Chicago and they had a pretty generous admissions policy that they're, they're looking at, um, they're, they're changing a little bit because they were letting in students that weren't entirely, prepared for college and then those students would flunk out after a couple semester after maybe a year and be, you know, the better part of 20 grand in debt um, and have nothing to show for it. Mm-hmm. So it almost, it, it, it seemed unfair. So that was partially my perspective when I was talking about sympathy C's and sympathy D's. Right. That's I, 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 the, the whole student loan thing just gets my goat, especially for, mm-hmm. for kids like that. It such, seems like such a crime, but anyway, I want to ask you about uh, getting into print. Uh, you know, getting to publication. I assume there were difficulties in false starts along the way. Like how many um, false starts did you have? Did you ever have a point where you thought you were going to quit? Um, with this particular project or with writing in general? Both. Um, well, this particular, this, this project, uh, I was working on the, this zero fade. Um, the characters in it are black. Uh, I was, I didn't, I wanted to get the guidance that I needed in writing a whole narrative novel. Um, and I didn't know that I could complete an entire book about my mixed race identity, um, to my liking in the time that I had at school. So I just tried to not think about race while I was writing Zero Fade. The irony to that was that, um, instead I was constantly questioning if, you know, the voices I was using were authentic, if I was if I was portraying my characters correctly, um, which sort of went back to the, you know, the people in high school telling me that I talked white. So then, um, are all my black characters talking white was something I was asking myself a lot. Um, I don't know if I ever felt like I was going to quit once I was in school. It felt very do or die, which also meant that I would just toss and turn a lot of nights because I was so concerned with, with getting work done and, you know, trying to get it published. And, you know, making good on the decision to go to school. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of have a personality where I, I don't give a damn until I care. And then I really care. Um, and so I was kind of experiencing that really caring. And I knew that I, I had to do it. Otherwise I'd be really letting myself down. Um, but in terms of false starts, I wrote it. I, I did a, ver- a version of it, a draft in first person. And then I switched it to third person for a draft. Um, and realized I didn't like that and that wasn't working. So I switched it back to first. Um, so I feel like I lost about six months there. Uh, in that time, I got a little bit of stuff about some of the secondary characters. So it wasn't a total loss. But that was kind of a – that was definitely going pretty far down the wrong road for a while there. Did you get uh, 
a lot of value out of being in workshop and having, you know, fellow students and kind of a community around you? Or are you somebody who, when you write, um, is more of a lone wolf? Um, no, I, I definitely like the community. It's inspiring to be around other people that, that like to write and that are doing similar things. Um, in, inspiring in that I can have a conversation with them about something that I'm working on or about a problem I'm having. And also inspiring to see what they're doing and, um, you know, having that kind of friendly competition. So I think being around other writers is really important. Um, and that's something I was really wary of about moving to L.A. I formed a really good creative community here in Chicago. Luckily, I went out to visit two weekends ago. I did a reading at 826, and it was terrific. I met a bunch of really nice people and heard some some terrific writing. So I don't know. That, that kind of helped me to focus more on what I've got coming up instead of what I'm going to be leaving behind. Well, you know, the, that's a good point because I think a lot of people, especially once they leave like the the womb of their collegiate life or their MFA life, is that it becomes a lot harder – to uh, build and sustain community, you know, especially like, or I guess with the respect to what we're talking about, a creative community, it takes work, yeah. but I think it can be really, um, can be really helpful and like not only creatively, but personally, you know, and it's something I think I need to do better uh, with, you know, because so much of the community that I create uh, is still virtual, you know, like there's a lot that I do mm -hmm. online. I do this podcast, which, I think is part of my frustration. It's an extension of my frustration with the two dimensional world of computer screens, but it's still, you know, it's still not quite what we're talking about. So like when you say that you built a community in Chicago, like uh, exactly like, what does that mean? What does it entail? Like, were you getting together regularly with a writing group or do you have some sort of like fixed schedule where you're meeting up? No, it's just more that I, I have a handful of friends um, who I share my writing with. And it isn't something where, you know, we go to the same coffee house every three weeks and go over each other's manuscripts. You're like, you're, I like, mean, we, it is. you're like, we don't even see each other. We just, we just email each other. <laughs> we, just, we don't want to. Well, they're my them. friends. So they're, <laughs> they're people that I socialize with in Chicago, but then also, yeah, we email each other stuff. Um, and also, you know, if I go out to a social event, there's a good chance it's going to be literary. Um, it's going to be literature related and that I'm going to see other writers that I know and other editors that I know. And that, I don't know. I think I think having that type of community even helped me to get my book published. Curbside Splendor, who who did my book, they're they're in Chicago, and they're one of their editors, Jacob Nab, saw a status where I was bragging about thinking I was finally done with my novel. They asked to look at it. Um, that's how my book got published. So I think you know, knowing people is is is, is an important thing to me. Okay, so what about doing the work itself? Like, uh, you know, are you an everyday writer? Do you do you know like what is your schedule? How do you actually approach uh, the act of writing. I, I like to, I'm sharpest in the morning. I'm one of those annoying people who's up, you know, the alarm goes off and it's immediately, Hey, what's going on today? Okay. 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 So and I finished zero fade. I, I graduated school. It was my thesis novel. Um, and I kind of kicked back for a few weeks and then was like, I need to, you know, maintain this writer thing that I went to school to do. I started getting up at five thirty or six every morning and writing for a couple hours before work. That's when I get my best stuff done. It's first thing in the morning. Um, before the the day has kind of seeped into my mind and ruined it, you know. I'm amazed by people, I and mean, I know that like people can write late at night, but I'm amazed by people who can do that because like by, well, I don't know. I get up so early that I'm just tired, but it, it's also like my brain is sort of used up. I don't know how you can regenerate after being awake all day and then write at night. It seems very difficult. Exactly. Yeah, my brain shits out around eight thirty p.m. So are you seven days a week? Um, lately, no, I've been so preoccupied with moving and with promoting, I, I don't know, I'm doing some writing work for Zero Fade, like we're doing this blog tour, and I'm answering interview questions via email and writing guest posts for blogs. Um, and that's kind of cut into, into my generating new work. Um, but no, at best, I'm five days a week, but usually it's, it's every couple of days. Um, ideally, once I get out to California, um, I'll be writing for a couple hours in the morning before work every couple of days and maybe going running on the days that I don't write. Um, well, yeah. That's another thing that really helps to clear my head is running. So sometimes I will be more focused. You know, if I come home from work and then I run a few miles, my, I'm a lot more able to, to focus on something than I, than I would be otherwise. So are you still, and are you still skateboarding? Do you ever bust out the old board? Um, <laughs> I had a yard sale about a month ago. And was debating whether or not I should sell my skateboard, and I got it out and was rolling around the neighborhood to hang out the yard sale signs. And then 
was like, I'm keeping this thing. Uh, <laughs> hey, you're moving to Los Angeles. You can be, you know, you can get on the skateboard out here year round. That's exactly. I was like, maybe I can continue to get away with this because I, I guess this has come through in the conversation a couple of times, but I do get self-conscious about aging gracefully and I don't want to be skateboard dad or whatever, no, but, but I think no, there's going to be more and more skateboard dads, you know? Exactly. Like, listen, I think like, I get what you're saying about aging rocker. I think that there's, you, know, you have to be, you have to be careful about being graceful in that department. But, uh, I think skateboard dad is a good thing. I say fight, fight <laughs> the hands of the clock and ride that skateboard. <laughs> Just don't hurt yourself. Okay. All right. Deal. <laughs> well, listen, it's, uh, it's been great talking with you. Congratulations on uh, the new book and on the big move. And uh, hopefully, you know, we'll cross paths somewhere uh, around town when you're here. That would be terrific. It's great talking to you as well. Thank you. Okay, folks, there you have it. That is Chris L. Terry. His debut novel, Zero Fade, is available now from Curbside Splendor. Go get it. You can find him online at chrislterry.com, and he's also on Twitter, where his handle is at zerofade94. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, what about that app, the free official Other People app? It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So go get that, pretty please. If you haven't done so already, the app itself is free. Uh, okay, so, uh, you know, clearly I'm a little scatterbrained today. I feel like I've talked a lot today. Can you hear it in my voice? you hear that? Uh, I had a meeting this morning across town. I did an interview for this program. Uh, and then I, I myself was interviewed. And then after that, I was talking to my family. And now here I am. Uh, it's late at night. And I'm sitting in front of this microphone talking to you. Uh, I only have so much brain power. I can't even talk to myself anymore. I have nothing to say to myself. Please remember that there are 86 chapters and 86 epigraphs in Middlemarch. And that Hobbes, Descartes, Pascal, Spinoza, Locke, Hume, Kant, Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, and Wittgenstein never got married. That's it for now. Thanks uh, again to uh, Chris L. Terry. Go get his book. I'm going to be back on Sunday with another episode of this uh, show, another episode of this podcast. I will attempt to deliver you the story behind the story. You understand what I'm saying? There's the story and then there's the story uh, behind the story. And uh, if you're lucky, you might even get the story behind the story behind the story. If you know what I mean. Uh, keep your fingers crossed. Things are going to change. I can feel it. 